All right, my friends, before we get into today's Live Inspired podcast, something cool that is happening more frequently going forward is that as I prepare to share my story on stages, I'm not known to that audience as a speaker. And I'm not known usually to that audience as an author. Instead, a whole lot of the ladies and gentlemen in the room are already following me and our work through the Live Inspired podcast. They're listening, in other words, to this voice right now through their own channels. Very cool. We've had more than a million downloads, as you know. It's a top 20 iTunes show, as you may know, which is very cool. But it also means that a whole lot of ladies and gentlemen are unaware of my number one national best-selling book. It's where I encapsulate in so many regards, the best of our story. It's called On Fire. It's a worthy read. It's been celebrated by Brene Brown and Dave Ramsey, Joe Buck, a whole lot of other luminaries who have talked about the impact of this book in their lives. It also has received more than 1,500 five-star reviews online that has very little to do with this guy's voice or the man who wrote it and everything to do with the reader with the impact in the reader's life and ultimately what it does for us professionally, what it does for us relationally, spiritually, relationally, and in every aspect of our life that actually matters. It's called On Fire. It is available. But rather than sending you to your nearby bookstore today, what I'm encouraging you to do right now is to let your fingers do the walking. Come on over to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. This is a gift. I want you to be able to check out the first two chapters of On Fire. So come on over to visit me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. And if you want to share this story, share this book with your friends, with your family, with your clients or contacts this holiday season, awesome. I think with all the divisions going on around us in our community, with all the reasons for fear and trepidation and anxiety and and nervousness looking forward, why not share a message about love and hope and faith and possibility and the truth that the best is yet to come? You can learn more at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Those who know me well know that I am a note-taker. I'm a, a huge note-taker, moving as quickly as I do and pulled in as many directions as I am. If I don't write something down, I'm going to forget it. It's why every morning I wake up a little bit earlier than I need to, and I journal the question, why me? I do it because I want to remember what I'm grateful for. I don't want to forget that. It's why before I go to bed, I journal on the question, what more can I do every evening to capture specific things that I can do to make tomorrow even better than today? And it's why at conference, I always bring a journal. And if you've ever seen me there, you see me writing voraciously because if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. You see, I I wanna steal shamelessly from the best speakers and thought leaders on ideas that have impacted their life. And then I strive to copy them and model them in my own life too. But with today's guest, it's a gentleman that I heard speaking at a conference. As he started sharing his story, I was so moved and so engaged and so caught up in the moment that I took 
zero notes. As he shared his message, I actually shut the journal. I soaked up the story and felt deeply grateful, not only to hear this story, but to know that guys like this are out there in the world doing good work. I also knew as I was listening to Jake that I would invite this gentleman on to our Live Inspired podcast so he could share it again with me selfishly, but also that I could take this story and share it with the rest of us listening today. My friends, our guest today served seven and a half years in the U.S. Marine Corps as a platoon commander in both infantry and force recon, special operations unit. It was an experience, though, that he witnessed in Iraq that changed the arc of his life, revealing to him, and I think to all of us, that wars cannot be won only on the battlefield, but by getting to the actual cause that leads to terrorism in the first place, including extreme poverty. His organization, Uru, is actively elevating and changing the lives of more than 100,000 people today around the world. Today, my friends, we have the honor of interviewing none other than my friend, Jake Harriman. Jake, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much, John. It's a privilege to be here. Well, we were talking before we hit record, and I said, dude, I, I have an opportunity of interviewing some really cool people on this podcast, and I seldom get nervous but I'm nervous today, man, which is a healthy sign because I'm fired up. You really have a terrific life story. And as remarkable as it's been, it's what you're doing today and what you're going to be doing tomorrow that turns me on the most. So for those who don't know the name Jake Harriman yet, give us a snapshot of who you are and the work you're doing today. Sure. Well, I, I grew up on a little farm in West Virginia and uh, we, were, we were poor at the time, but I didn't know it. My parents were amazing. They gave me a really incredible upbringing. And uh, kind of classic upbringing, played football in high school, went to, then went to the U.S. Naval Academy for college, and I studied systems engineering there, played rugby, and was commissioned in the Marine Corps as I left the academy. Then spent about seven and a half years in the Marine Corps, uh, both in infantry and, and on the special operations side, deployed, did a couple tours of combat in Iraq, and I was in other areas in the Middle East and, and the Horn of Africa. And it was really during my experiences in combat that my eyes were opened up to this really disturbing connection between the desperation that extreme poverty created in a lot of the areas that we were operating to take out these terrorists and how that desperation was fueling the growth of a lot of these extremists, these, a lot of these terrorist movements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, the guys and I and my unit, we began to see what we believed was really a critical gap in our national security strategy. You see, DOD had us out there kind of doing, uh, trying to help in these villages, but we were trained to take out targets. We were not trained to help farmers increase crop yields. <laughs> and the aid groups that were out there could not reach these most vulnerable populations that were directly being influenced by extremists simply because it was too unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we just thought, what if we could just build a hybrid? What if we could take former operators who have combat experience, know how to handle themselves in these environments? And equip them with a brand new sustainable development model that really unlocks the potential of local leaders to solve their own problems, to address these critical vulnerabilities. And that way, together, we can build something that provides alternatives, real, lasting, meaningful choices to these families so they don't have to support the growth of these violent extremist groups. And so then I, that led me on a, on a path that was very different from the course that I was on. And... Uh, after I got out, I, I went to Stanford Business School to build this organization that could kind of step into that national security gap. The organization became known as Nuru International, a new social venture at the intersection at the crossroads of security and development that specifically is designed to go 
into the most inaccessible populations, vulnerable communities mm. that are that are being influenced by violent extremist groups. We build strong, resilient local organizations run, led, and owned by local leaders. And and we build these resilient organizations so they have choices um, as opposed to supporting these groups. And then we walk away after five to seven years, leaving behind these strong leaders that we have really been working with for the past five years who now have the ability to not only run and sustain the organizations, but to, for the organizations really to thrive and scale. And in fact, uh, our philosophy is that, you know, a strong Nigerian woman is far more equipped and better to solve their pro- her problems in her community and her region than I will ever be. The, mm. the key is just unlocking that potential and let, letting her go. Dude, so, there's your bio in a snapshot, and I'm going to go back through and pull out some bullets that you uh, <laughs> that you shared because I want to take a little bit of a deeper dive on on almost everything sure. that you just talked about. Starting with number one, you mentioned that you grew up on a on a farm in West Virginia. W- when did this this farm kid from a poor part of West Virginia have this idea of of, of uh, actively serving in the military? What what, what turned you on to that idea? Well, my father was in the Navy. I, I didn't really have any other influences in my family other than uh, that had served in the military other than him. And he served four years in, in the Navy during Vietnam. He was in the Gulf of Tonkin and on the USS Midway. And, you know, he never really talked about it. But what really got to me was, I don't know if you remember, John, but uh, they used to have these Fourth of July parades every year. Mm. And, you know, my family and I would sit around our little black and white TV and watch the, watch the parade every year. And my father would tear up, and I, and I remember being a kid thinking, here's this big, tough man that I admired and respected more than anything, crying. And I thought, you know, is he, do you have some in his eyes? Or, you know, is there something, is he mad about something? And I, and I began to realize over the years that my father really understood the cost of freedom. You know, he had a lot of close friends who had served in the Marine Corps on the front lines of Vietnam that didn't make it back. And his generation uh, had paid a pretty heavy toll to help uh, try to bring freedom and, and hope to other people. Uh, and he really understood that. And so I, he instilled in me this really almost burden that I needed to serve. It didn't even seem like an option. I, I began to have this nagging feeling that um, this is something I was right. really created, created to do. And that set me on that trajectory. You enlisted into a, a healthy economy. The war uh, of terror has not begun yet. The U.S. is not really at war around the world, at least not not, not in massive ways. I think you, you you enter in in '99, but in just a couple of years, the entire world, including your own, is going to change. Were, were you when you enlisted, Jake? Did you have did you have a desire to seek active duty? Were you, were you looking to go to a front line at some point? Well, it's really funny because I, we were all very naive. You know, at the time, the U.S. had not seen major combat, major conflicts since Vietnam. So there was a whole generation that had, uh, you know, really didn't understand what war meant and what what it was all about, what the cost of war was. And so, you know, I, I had gone into the U.S. Naval Academy kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed thinking that, you know, I was this, uh, you know, tough, smart kid that was going to, if anything ever happened, I wanted to be on the front lines, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to, you know, I was competitive. I was an athlete. I, I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I really want to do it you know, on the front lines. 
of course I had no idea what I was talking about. And, uh, and frankly, none of us did at the time, but, um, that's what drove me into the Marine Corps. That's what drove me into infantry and then the special operations field. And of course, over time, we all began to realize, uh, after nine 11, what that, what that cost really was all about. You, uh, as we go farther down the path, you're probably going to use the word operator quite a bit. And many of our listeners are going to think that's the person you speak to when you dial zero. <clears throat> so for those of us who are not quite as familiar with the core or force recon or your platoon as maybe you are, Jake, what is an operator and what are some of the things that they are tasked with doing? Uh, an operator very simply is a special operations military person, someone who is in uh, the U.S. Uh, Special Operations Forces, either in the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force. And operators have a lot of different types of missions that they do, but there are two specifically that Force Recon was tasked with doing mm-hmm. that I was a part of. One is called Deep Reconnaissance and Surveillance. That's when they send us in pretty far behind enemy lines to essentially collect information to, to spy on larger enemy presences to understand, collect video, collect photos that can be sent back to higher headquarters that to that will inform follow-on attacks and follow-on military operations. And then the other uh, main mission was called direct action. And this is the one I guess most people think about from right. the movies. It's where you have a hostage where you have to go in and, and, and rescue the hostage or you have a high-value a terrorist target, uh, an individual leader in leadership that you need to either capture or kill. So you come in in either helicopters or in the middle of the night and you go, go get this person and uh, get them out of there. Jake. So I, uh, I've had the honor of speaking a couple thousand times professionally, uh, around the world. And, uh, by far my favorite group actually was at Fort Bragg speaking to, um, hmm. a group of operators, but for the most part, None of the guys were there. They they were at work somewhere in the world, mm-hmm. which meant that the room was full primarily of, of ladies. These are the, the, the women at home, while the f- operators themselves are overseas quietly and humbly and secretively, <laughs> dangerously going about the, the, the work they have been tasked with. Uh, it, it was a sacred moment, but for, for the, those... Um, for our listeners today, just talk for a moment about what that community is like, because it, it was a community like one I'd, I'd never felt before, and I haven't felt since. Well, I have I have never felt such close ties as I have with the guys in my unit, and it's an unusual bond. It's you, you know, you form bonds with these guys that uh, you, you know you, you know their kids' names, you know their their spouses. You know, their hopes, uh, their dreams. They know you really well, too, inside and out. Both your strengths and your and your many right. weaknesses, too. And, you know, you you become a family. I think it's, uh, it's actually in these units that I learned the most about leadership. I learned about servant leadership. And I learned that from my guys. I didn't learn it from a book or from a conference or anything like that. It was from, it was from the, the men that I had the... the unbelievable privilege of, of leading. Mm. And, you know, I, I used to talk about how people used to ask me why I fought in the war. And, uh, I always talk about there, you know, there's really two main reasons. One of them is this, this idea that is America, you know, this idea of a, a nation that stands for the freedom and lasting meaningful choices of everybody everywhere. And the other one though, uh, in, in a, in a very deep way, it was for, the man on my right and left, yep. you know, I, I fought to get those guys home. 
to the loved ones that I knew were waiting for them. And I would do anything to make that happen. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the operators down the front lines. It's, as you mentioned, it's the spouses and the families at home as well that are, that are sacrificing yeah. so much for their country. Well, let's talk about a moment when you were on the front line um, with your group. It's, I, I believe, four o'clock in the morning. You, you, you were uh, kind of surprised, attacked the day before. So you know the attack is coming again now. You're in Southern Iraq. And I'll let you share this story. It's an inflection point in your life from that moment. Yeah, Southern Iraq at the time was really one of the poorest places in the world. There was a terrible food security problem. There was no access to healthcare education for kids. See, Saddam had been really oppressing the Shia population in the south. And so what had been happening as we moved through the southern Iraq to, to take Baghdad was the regular Iraqi army, for the most part, was retreating to make a final stand in Baghdad. While Saddam pushed his special forces guys, his Fedayeen soldiers south, and they were going hut to hut in these really remote, poor villages, essentially coercing these poor farmers to fight us. And they were saying, look, you know, your kids are starving right in front of you. If you pick up this weapon and go fight these guys 10 miles south of here, we'll drop off a bag of rice here every couple of weeks. You know, and we were fighting these guys by the hundreds and thousands at the beginning of the, world, and the, uh, beginning of the war. And that's really what set the stage for this one catalytic moment in my life. And as you mentioned, John, we, were, we had just survived the first major contact of the war. We'd been ambushed in, in a city called Nasiriya. We were able to fight through the city and set up a defensive position north of the city where we had dug in because we'd outrun our supplies, meaning we were waiting resupply. And it was about 4.30 or 5 in the morning as, as um, the sun was about to come up, and I knew that as the sun came up, they were going to start shooting at us again. So I got up, and I started walking the lines to check on my guys. And I looked up on the highway, and I saw this little white car racing toward our position from the north. And the enemy had just started using this suicide bombing tactic where they'd pack explosives in their car, and they'd run into our position and blow themselves up. So I thought this, this car was a suicide bomber. So I grabbed three of my guys and took off running to get the car to stop. And finally, the car stops about 50 meters out in front of us. The driver hops out, starts waving his arms frantically and running at me. So now I think this guy's shot to bond with his chest. And so I, I'm yelling at him in Arabic to get on the ground. He's not listening. And as I lift my weapon, thinking I have to take this guy out, I look behind him. And I see a large black military truck roll up behind his little white car. Six guys in black jump out of the truck, run up to the car, and they start shooting into the car. This man stops dead in his tracks, starts screaming, turns around and starts running back to his car. And that's when I realized that this man was just one of those poor farmers who was trying to escape across our lines to safety because he didn't want to fight us. And so I yelled at my guys to take out the Fedayeen, and, and I ran as fast as I could to save this guy's family. But by the time I got there, it was, it was too late. Mm. I, look, I looked in the, uh, the passenger side. His, his wife had been shot in the face and in the chest. She was slumped over dead. and He had a little infant baby in the back whose um, arm had been shot off, and she'd been shot in the head. And he was cradling the body of his little five- or six-year-old daughter, who had been shot in the stomach and um, she was choking on her own blood as she, she was trying to breathe. And I had seen a lot of bad things in the war before that and after that, but there, there was something so unjust about mm. this. And for the first time in the war, everything slowed down and I put myself in this man's shoes. And I thought, you know, I, 
I live in a world of choices. Where do I want my kids to grow up? What do I want them to have for breakfast? You know, what, what were this guy's choices when he woke up this morning? He had nothing. He could watch his kids starve to death, strap a bond on himself, or make some desperate attempt to cross our lines. He had nothing. And uh, I got really angry. I thought, you know, it's not fair that the GPS coordinates of a person's birthplace dictate what choices they have in this world. So we, we all, Jake, first of all, the story you just shared, it's the, uh, the, the 33rd time I think I've heard it because I keep playing back what I heard at conference when you shared that story. And every time, man, it, it moves me to the point of tears and anger and, um, and encouragement because rather than just getting mad and pulling a trigger and getting on with your life, you decide to at least imagine doing something about this. And I'd like you to pivot into that next. So uh, your tour continues. That farmer's life, as tragic as it is, continues. The war continues. Then what what do you begin to do about this anger and this desire to give that farmer and farmers like him around the world a different option in their lives? Well, you know, for years, every night that I went to bed, uh, I would close my eyes and I would see that guy's eyes. And I couldn't shake it. You know, I, I, I contended in the war. I, we, we took Baghdad. They took us off the front lines and, and sent us back to the States uh, when, they, when things had settled down. I then went over to Force Recon, took selection, picked up my platoon, went back over and was doing a lot of snatch and grab missions and R&S. And, you know, but we saw the same thing again and again. Mm-hmm. And I began to see that, that, yes, there are evil people in this world that have to be taken care of by our military. But this problem was not going to go away by military force alone. And there was a gap in our strategy. And that, you know, if we didn't, if we wanted to really stop this, we were going to have to remove the desperation and lack of choices that was fueling the growth of a lot of these groups through recruiting, through harboring these groups into their villages where they can hide and use it for basic logistics. And these groups were doing aid work, you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda and Al Shabaab, Boko Haram, they do aid work. They're horribly oppressive, but they also do some basic services in these villages and there's, they have no other choices. And so why we came up with this idea about what if we could just provide those choices? What if we could provide alternatives? You know, maybe we could take away that desperation that could actually lead to the permanent gains that our military men and women on the front lines, as they make those gains, they could stay gains and we could actually begin to really defeat what I believe is one of the biggest threats to humanity, not just the United States. So you have you have this thought while you are in Iraq and it's becoming more and more clear. And it's my understanding that you recognize, man, to do this, I either need to get a job with someone that has already driven to do this. And apparently <laughs> you run into some roadblocks with that one. Or I better yeah. pick up a little bit of business acumen and figure out how to do, how to how to do this thing, how to build this thing, and drive this thing on my own. Uh, I, I read Jake that you had a job after uh, after coming out of the service. Your favorite job described at the time as a sandwich delivery man in San Diego. Is that true? <laughs> well, it was close. It was a seafood <laughs> delivery truck. Yes, seafood I, uh, delivery. Close that's enough. That's right. Man. I was. I, I had just gotten out. Um, I had gotten out and I was trying to figure out how to take this idea and make it real. And my initial idea was I was going to join an organization that knew, had a model to, to fight extreme poverty and just add my expertise in this idea and try to help out. The challenge was that uh, nobody wanted to hire me. And so 
I was really frustrated and, and frankly, a, a little lost. And I was trying to process the war. You know, all of us over there have a lot of things we kind of deal with when we come home. And so I was trying to figure out what it was all about. How was I, what had I done in leaving my guys and leaving the Marine Corps and kind of made a horrible mistake. And as I was doing that, I had to pay rent. And so I, I, I finally got a, a job driving a seafood delivery truck in San Diego route and LA route, Orange County route. And, and honestly, it was one of the best things that could happen to me because I had all this time to think and process and plan for the future. And during that time, I was able to apply to business school. I had this idea, you know, I'm going to build a company, which uh, I thought, you know, screw those guys from not hiring me. I'll just have to build my own thing. And uh, I needed to understand how to build a company and scale it. So I applied to Stanford and Harvard. I mean, I'd heard of those schools and and I didn't apply anywhere else thinking, you know, if it's meant to be, I'll get in. And I don't know, they must have had like a blue collar quota or something because <laughs> I, I got in and, uh, and so I you know, decided to go. And <clears throat> it was a really, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a really amazing experience. Um, over 30 of my classmates there at school helped me build out the approach for Nehru, um, helped me build out the the model, I had, I had six faculty members there provide seed funding, mentorship, and advice um, that really helped me get it off the ground and, and raise our funding. We were able to raise about, you know, I was dashing in, in and out of classes to yeah. funder meetings and getting like 20 meetings. I'd get like one maybe, you know. But over time, we began to raise money and I was able to raise about 500000 to get us started. Jake, were you surprised uh, that at a competitive school like Stanford, as everyone is racing, you know, there's only one top of the class. They're, we're all competitive. And yet your class seemed to come around you and your professors seemed to come around this idea. Did that surprise you to see how magnetic it was even at, on, in the early stages? It was. I mean, I, was, I didn't know how I, not only my idea was going to be received, but how I was going to be received. You know, I, I didn't know how Stanford University was going to see, view my experience as a combat veteran. And, and uh, I, you know, I was new to the civilian world and but I'll tell you what, I, I found a welcome family with open arms, people who had this, who wanted to really listen to my story, who really wanted to listen to what I wanted to do and really be a part of the solution. They were amazing people. And I, I could not have done um, any of what I did in building Nehru without my classmates uh, and, the, and the faculty at Stanford who kind of really got behind this vision. So you have this vision to eradicate extreme poverty in the most unstable, vulnerable regions to help end violent extremism. That, that's that's the, the vision. Take us forward into the practice of this now. So wh- wh- where did you begin putting boots on the ground to actually begin implementing the, the, the plan that was uh, first conceived at Stanford? Well, I had a mentor at business school who said, look, um, you're crazy. You want to be in these, these combat zones, which is great, uh, but you don't have any development experience. So take this model that you've created and you really need to prove that it can work first. So take it to a relatively politically stable area first, prove it can work, and then introduce more volatility, take it to more unstable stable places. And so when I graduated, I moved to one of the most remote areas in Southwest Kenya to launch the pilot project um, that became Nehru International. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a pretty amazing experience over the next uh, seven years, I lived in rural villages there in southwest Kenya and then the mountains of southern Ethiopia as we opened our second project, really building and testing this approach. But I'll tell you, the uh, 
it wasn't easy at all. Uh, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. And the very first week I was there, uh, I got attacked by thieves and, and black widow spiders and fire ants. And I, we had an earthquake. I got malaria. <laughs> and Dude, then the last day I think this is a the biblical week, warning. If I were you, I would have been on the, the, the next <laughs> bus out of Dodge. Well, it's even worse. The last day of the week, then I got struck by lightning. So, I mean, you talk about biblical uh, <laughs> right. warnings. Uh, so I, it was definitely, uh, had challenges in the beginning, definitely doubted myself a lot along the way, but I had this like burning desire and passion that had been forged in me during that awakening and combat that simply wouldn't go away. There was no going back. There was no alternative. I had to pursue this and, I, and we had, we had to make this work. And, and honestly, the only success that we have, I can credit all of my success to my team. Yeah. Despite all my flaws and despite all my failings and weaknesses over the years, I have an incredibly uh, gifted, talented, unbelievably amazing team that I've been blessed with over the years. They are the true heroes. They are the ones that have pulled off, just like it was when I was in the Marine Corps. They are the, they are the ones who were able to do the impossible. When we could diverge here and talk about the ladies and gentlemen you hire, including operators, which I think is such an awesome model uh, to utilize probably the best among us to help create the best work possible. But instead, I, I want to focus on those that you're serving and those that I think you would agree are teaching you. Uh, mm -hmm. You've impacted more than 100,000 now in the community uh, in Kenya and in Ethiopia. That's a big number, but Sometimes we get lost in big numbers. Give us the number one. Can, can you share one story of how this new Rue International has impacted one life, what it looked like for them, and what it means for the rest of us now? Well, one example is a woman named Milka Marwa. Uh, when I first got to Kenya, I met her out in the field um, as she was in her farm trying to eke out a living for her family. And she was really struggling. I mean, she, she had six kids. Um, two of them had died the previous year from malaria. Uh, they, she was uh, making about three bags of maize of corn on her one acre of land, and she needed about six to feed her family. So the kids were getting one uh, meal of a very weak porridge every day. And um, I, so I come up to her, and I'm, I'm talking with her about, you know, here I am. I'm this. I feel like I'm this smart you know, Stanford kid who's this tough operator who's going to bring all these solutions. And I start telling her all these things we're going to do. And she totally interrupted me. She's like, stop. And I say, excuse me? And she said, stop. I don't need you to tell me what we need or, frankly, how we can solve the problem. The women and I in this village have some pretty incredible ideas, and we definitely understand our needs. What we need from you is we just need your help to get started. We need a catalyst. She didn't use the word catalyst, but... We need mm -hmm. you to kind of help us get off the ground. And it was a really great lesson for me. Humility is mm -hmm. like a core characteristic of leadership. The humble leader will always be able to persevere in the end. And in all my arrogance and all my, um, you know, inability to listen, um, I had missed that. And she and others in my life along the way have really taught that and, and lesson to me. But Milka enrolled in our programs and, in the first year with Nehru, she was able to increase her crop yield from three bags of maize per acre to 18, mm. which means uh, that she could feed her family and then she could sell the rest for income. Mm -hmm. With that income, she, she bought a plow cow 
which meant she could hire that out to other farmers the next season, make a little money as they plowed their fields. And she uh, began to rise in stature in the community. She had originally, as in their poverty, she'd been beaten horribly by her husband. But as she became a businesswoman and began to be gain a lot of clout in the community, um, he began to leave her alone because she was the breadwinner. She was the one who was actually making the decisions and bringing success to the family. Uh, we hired her to become a field officer. She was so respected, and she was in charge of 50 families first, and then got promoted to field manager, where she's now in charge of 500 families in that region. And I'll tell you what, when I go back there, I, I steer clear of Milka. She is one <laughs> tough lady. What is next for her and for your organization as you start to prove out proof of concept here? Well, our, what we have on the horizon now, our, our focus, our, our next pilot that we're running is now in Northeast Nigeria. We have finally got to the, the culmination of the vision I had in, in uh, 2003. And we're embedded in uh, former Boko Haram and ISIS Caliphate territory up in Northeast Nigeria, where no other NG, uh, Western NGOs can operate. And our goal is to build out a strong, resilient pilot where we have strong data that we can bring back to the U.S. government, uh, to Congress, and to the administration, and really work on changing the national security strategy when it comes to fighting violent extremist groups. You know, we want to become a, a critical component, this proactive development component. Alongside the kinetic, the military action, we need this proactive development component. And what we see on the ground in Africa, there's a region called the Sahel, which is a little small band uh, just south of the Sahara Desert, that uh, goes from Niger to Mali to Burkina Faso to Senegal. And ISIS and Al-Qaeda <clears throat> are moving there in really alarming numbers. And we think that if nothing is done to get into this problem, it's going to become the next Afghanistan in the next five to ten years. And so what we have a vision to do is to scale up this pilot, this approach that we've started in northeast Nigeria across the Sahel to really help stabilize that region build out strong, resilient pockets of, of, of communities that can resist the influence of violent extremist groups so that the military, when they find them, they can fix them and eliminate them, and there is no further spread of these groups. Jake, it's such a bold vision, and um, it's such a steep climb. You, you know, when you're in the U.S. and you look at poverty, it, it, it can be discouraging, and we're in the wealthiest country in the history of the world looking at it through that lens. You're in some of the poorest regions in the history of the world with extremists breathing down your throats saying, I see a solution here. What, what keeps you optimistic and what keeps you engaged in, um, in the work at hand? I say two things. One is that burning in me that came from that experience in Iraq uh, during, the, during the early days of the war. And the second is, it's the people, John. It's the people. It's everyday interactions with whether it's a person on my team, whether it's a eight-year-old girl at a junior high who wants to do free throw competition with her school to raise money for farmers in, in a place that she's never been to, whether it's a farmer who has escaped the chains of extreme poverty, who can give their kids a real future, not just for a year or two years, but mm -hmm. for their entire life. It's for those communities that have been horribly oppressed by violent extremist groups that, you know, for the first time are going to be able to, to unite with other communities and resist these groups. 
It's the young men and women that are deploying overseas to fight violent extremists on the front lines who will not be have to go to some of these other countries because we'll be able to cut off one of the root causes of the spreads of, the, of, of this violence. You know, it's these are the things that keep me going. Mm-hmm. These are the things that give me that drive and passion because there are days you do not want to get out of bed mm-hmm. because you have, you have people die, you have funding dry up, you have people betray you and leave you. Uh, governments get in the way, but you have to keep going. You can never give up. And when the cause is just and the cause is right, there is no turning back. You uh, have been celebrated for your uh, for your your movement and your mission. You know, I, I've received a few awards myself. I'm not trying to brag, but I did win a boxcar derby in, in third grade for the Boy Scouts. <laughs> I won a bubble hockey tournament at a bar in college. I think those are my two yeah. awards. Yours are a little bit different than mine. Ung Sung, Sung Hero of Compassion, presented by the Dalai Lama, the White House Champion of Change, Senate Resolution in your home state of West Virginia, Presidential Leadership Scholar, you spoke there, 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs, presented by Goldman Sachs, among many, many, many others, brother. Very impressive. Of that list that I just shared, though, is there one award that you received that you're most proud of? Yes, and it's not on that list. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of is a gift that my men gave me when I left Force Recon, and it's called a Recon Paddle. And it's simply a wooden paddle uh, with a braid wrapped around the handle with a small plaque uh, and a picture on the back that has a picture of them while you're in Iraq. Wow. And um, they put their heart and soul into making that for me so I could remember so I can remember them. I can remember what we fought for. I can remember the, the, the freedom that we all strive so hard to help extend to the rest of the world and what that means. And it's a tangible thing that I keep. And it's probably the most uh, treasured possession that I have in the world. Man, that's awesome. You, um, you now spoken eloquently about them and you said that it's it's for those guys, those ladies to my left and right that I fight. But there's two reasons why I fought back then. One was for them. The other was for what you described as the idea of America. And as I've done some research preparing for this interview, it's something that I hear you keep coming back to, this, this idea of America. So tell our listeners, whether they are in our 50 states or they're listening from the 65 or so other countries that are tuning in right now, what is the idea of America? Why is that worthy of fighting for? The idea of America is a nation that believes in freedom. It believes in lasting, meaningful choices for everybody. Not a certain people group, everybody, everywhere. America has the ability to be this light and hope for the rest of the world. If we understand how to lead, if we understand that by leading, we need to serve our global partners, our global, the global, greater global community. America has so much potential. And frankly, John, you know, I don't think America ever has been great yet. We have the ability to be great. But all throughout our history, there's pockets of our of brave citizens within our fabric who have really been struggling and suffering. We have an opportunity as a nation to come together, eliminate the, the, the divisiveness that is just destroying us right now. We can come together and create something truly special in the world, something the world has never seen, something that our founding fathers really believed in and believed was possible. That has not happened yet, but it can happen with the right leadership. 
and Jake, I know you're not, you're, it's not a stump speech you're giving. So give me one thing that I can do and my listeners can do to begin moving forward toward that ideal and toward the, that idea of, of unity, truly. How, how do you begin to build a bridge to uh, meet others where they are and work forward together? What, what's one practical thing we actually could put into play today that would elevate someone else's life, including our own? Listen, find someone else who has the exact opposite political views that you do. Find that person, sit down with them and have a cup of coffee and get to know them and get to know what they believe and why they believe it. And really listen, don't wait for positive conversation so that you can make your point. You heard it here first from Jake Harriman, listen in a community that loves to bark out tweets and post and scream with a bullhorn, what better opportunity than today to grab a friend or an enemy and sit with them and, uh, and listen. Listen, it's a great, great advice. Jake, I'm gonna ask you a couple questions from various parts of your life. And I'm just curious, what was the main thing you learned during this time, okay? What did you learn during your time of growing up poor, although you didn't know you were in West Virginia? Yeah. I'd say uh, two main things. One, from my father, I learned uh, this idea of never give up. My father was an entrepreneur. Uh, he failed in several of the ventures that he tried to start, but, but the man never gave up. He never gave up the ability and the desire to provide for, the, for his family that he loved so much. And then from my mother, I learned the power of compassion, the power of serving other people, the power of, of mercy, and no understanding that there's always somebody who's in a worse off situation than you are to keep that perspective and to be able to extend love to other people, even if you don't understand the situation that mm -hmm. they're in. Well, uh, her son heard her advice and uh, has been implementing it for a couple decades. What did you learn during your time of serving in Iraq? I learned a lot about, uh, number one, the power of servant leadership this type of leadership that I, you know, it works everywhere. It works on the battlefield in corporate America. It works on the athletic field. It works in rural Africa. It's this unbelievable form of leadership where you lead with humility, you lead from the front, you put the needs of your people ahead of your own needs in every way. And then I learned about the power of choices, real choices. And the idea that everybody deserves to have access to those choices. And that the fact that you know, just because of where you're born in a certain area of the world should not prevent you from experiencing that freedom. Mm. What did you learn during your time uh, at Stanford? At Stanford, I learned about the power of possibilities. You know, it's a dream big. I mean, that place is full of <laughs> entrepreneurs with big ideas. And I have never seen so many big ideas in one place and people that believe they can pull them off and people who actually did pull them off. Um, I dreamed about the power, of, or I learned about the power of possibility, of, of the power of dreaming big, and the power of failure, the power of understanding, you know, that it, sometimes you're going to fail, and it's not going to work out, but you got to pick yourself back up and get back in the fight, because there is strength in learning from failure. Two more, Jake. You've almost run the gauntlet, brother. What have you learned from those who have been most impoverished in your life, whether that was growing up or... Uh, those that you see in Sub-Sahara Africa? Power of courage and the power of, again, like my mother demonstrated compassion. You know, we were poor, but my mom always extended love and whatever we had, 
to other people. When I was in these rural communities in these villages, I had people coming uh, out to give me uh, their last chicken, wanted to slaughter their last chicken to have have dinner for me, you know. And I had uh, people who would would just give whatever they had to try to make me feel loved and welcome. And I also learned the, the power of courage. You know, they were courageous beyond what uh, sometimes I even saw in combat. You know, the their ability to uh, of a, a mother who doesn't know how she herself is going to survive giving everything that she has, including her life, to be able to, to ensure that those kids have the ability to have a future. Finally, uh, Jake, you're fairly newly engaged. You're uh, totally head over heels for this woman. What have you learned from your fiance? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I, uh, I think about this a lot and I just, we just had her birthday and I, I wrote her a card and I think one of the things that I uh, mentioned in it that uh, meant the most to me is that she, she has taught me the power of, of real, true love, of what true love can do to a person, you know, about how it unlocks potential that you never even knew was there. How it gives you not happiness every day, but it gives you a deep joy and purpose that is just as strong or stronger than any passion or drive I've ever had in my entire life. She taught me the power of love. I never knew that before. Jake, when you are with her or her parents or yours or back home in West Virginia or in D.C. or anywhere else you may find yourself, and you see a parade go by, 4th of July, or you see the flag raised, or you hear taps played, I'm curious, the, the, at this stage in your life, are you like your father where you, you rise to your feet and there's tears in your eyes and you're as moved as he was? Absolutely. You know, John, our country... It's, it's the greatest place to be in the world, and there's more opportunity here than anywhere else. And I am so moved by what we can be. We are broken. We are flawed. We have so many things going on right now that are sad, but there's so much potential. More potential than anywhere else in the world. Potential for us to lead, and it moves me to know the sacrifice of everyday people out there defending the freedom and the, and the rights that we all love and that we all um, live by and that, that the rest of the world looks to and our men and women, not just in service, uh, in military service, but in the Peace Corps, and men, everyday men and women around the country, you know, but we have to get past our divisiveness to really be able to understand what that potential could be again in the world. And I think that, that starts with each of us. You know, we each have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask, what can we do? Not, to, not Let's not start big. Not, what, what can we do to make the world better? What can we do to make our community better? What can we do to make one life of our next-door neighbor better? That's a good place to start. Jake, all of our guests on our Live Inspired podcast are woven together through the asking and the answering of seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. So uh, question number one from those seven questions, what is the best book you have ever read? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, there's a lot of great, really great books out there. I could talk about uh, Gates of Fire, which is about the Spart the 300 Spartans. I could yeah. talk about um, lots of different leadership books out there, but I think, you know, I'm a man of faith. Um, I think the, one, the book that has influenced me the most uh, and it sounds a little bit cliche. Is actually the Bible. Um, I've 
trying to my best. I have a lot of flaws, but I've tried my best to live the principles of servant leadership that I've found in that book. And that has really shaped my life a lot. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in West Virginia that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? <laughs> Dreaming. Man, I could dream. I could dream not at night. I could. I had vision as a kid. I could dream big. I tried to do some crazy stuff as a kid. One time, <laughs> I, my brothers, my brother and I made this uh, potion out of I don't know crayons and wax and 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 dirt and put it on my Superman cape and and uh, it was a potion that was going to make me fly. And I jumped off the top of our barn to my mother's horror <laughs> and. L- landed in a, in a 10 foot pile of cow manure that saved my life. Are you I, sure you made it in Stanford? That was, it was, it was it accepted. Did it say accepted or rejected, man? You may have just misread it. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. I've asked myself that a thousand times. Uh, well, I would suggest that a man who believes he can eradicate, uh, hunger in the most dangerous parts of the world is still dreaming big. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that little boy jumping in a cow poop from the second story barn is still jumping. Uh, <laughs> Third question. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity right now to run in and grab one thing that matters to you, what would you run in and grab? There's a little metal, uh, little medallion <clears throat> that I carried with me in every hit that I did in combat. And it's got a scripture verse on the back of it, Joshua 1 9. And uh, it, it gave me uh, secure, seal my faith. And it gave me courage to do things I never would have been able to do otherwise while I was in combat. And I gave that to my uh, the love of my life when we got engaged um, because I wanted she has to go into dark places sometimes too. And I never wanted her to, uh, to have fear. I wanted her to have the same. She's so courageous. I wanted her to have the same medallion with her mm. as she goes into these places. And so uh, that's what I would, I would get. Jay, tell us what Joshua nine is. Uh, <laughs> I don't know verbatim. It's be strong, courageous, know that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that nice long visit with, Jake? Hmm. I think I'd like to sit with Abraham Lincoln hmm. and just ask him, how in the world did you get through that? How did you get through that time? How did you hold everything together? How did you still believe in possibility when, when you had a nation just literally tearing ourselves apart? I think it's really relevant for our time right now. I'd ask his advice that for how to get through at the time we're in right now. Now, placing yourself within his body, within that top hat and that long jacket, what do you think his response back to you might be? Find commonality. You know, Americans, there are threads and values that run true through all of us. I think getting back to those basics and remembering what those are is something I think he tried to do and to some degree succeeded. You know, I was thinking recently the Boston Red Sox won a World Series and a million and a half people apparently came out in Boston to party. And I don't think they were all Democrats, and I don't think they were all Republicans. I don't think they were all black. I don't think they were all straight or gay. And yet they seem to have their arms in the air, and they seem to have smiles on their face, and they seem to have a lot more in common than they had to tear them apart. And I think there's something to be learned, 
not just because it happened in Boston, but because uh, what can play in Boston can play everywhere else. What is what is unifier is much more powerful than the things we claim as being too big to to unify. Absolutely, I think Lincoln would know this and share it more uh, articulately than I. So, uh, just a couple more questions. What's the best advice you've ever received? My father once told me um, we were sitting uh, on a fence row building a fence when I was about six years old. And he told me to hold the fence post as he was sl- swinging this huge sledgehammer over my head to hit this, <laughs> uh, hit this post. I was terrified thinking, he, you know, he's going to miss and hit me. And I said, Dad, I can't. I can't. And I just kind of balled up, started crying, sat on the tailgate of the truck. And he sat down with me. He was really kind that moment. He sat down with me. He didn't yell at me. He said, hey, listen, son, I never want to hear those two words out of your mouth ever again. Never say that you can't do something. You can do whatever you want to in this world. You have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in those who love you. Powerful advice. Jake, what would you tell your 20 year old self? (laughs) Oh gosh. 20 year old self. It's going to be dark. You're going to get a lot of, uh, really horrific moments that you'll experience in your life that you didn't even know uh, were possible. But in those darkest moments, always know that there actually is light coming. The sun is going to come up the next day. There is truth and love in people and in this world. It's, it's not full of evil. It's not full of darkness. There are good people. There is good in this world. There are, There is a lot of light and hope out there more than there is darkness Mm. and never forget that even as dark as it gets never forget that well i'm with a guy right now who is living proof of that and reflecting an awful lot of light out there for the rest of us to see and so my final question to you jake harriman it has been said that all great people and servants and marines and philanthropists and i'm on the phone with one right now can have their lives summed up in one sentence how would you like your one sentence to read He learned to love and learned to lead by serving others. Jake Herman learned to love and learned to lead by serving others. He recognized that true love unlocks potential that he did not even know was there. And, uh, and the man has been holding the fence post for the last several decades and is an example to the rest of us to hold fast that there is an awful lot of darkness, but um, light always pushes through and ultimately wins in the end. So, uh, Jake Harriman, it has been a pleasure to get to know you, to hear your story, and to consider myself a friend. Thanks, John. So it's uh, a privilege. We, uh, we want to serve your organization in any, any way we can. Tell us where we can learn more about, uh, about the work you're doing today. You can go to nuruinternational.org, N-U-R-U, international.org. My friends, I encourage you, if you're like me and you're uh, you're beat down sometimes by the headlines of the day or, or the divisions in our communities or the struggles in your backyard or a, a world away, to go to the website now to learn more about Jake and the work they're doing and to recognize like you mentioned earlier, there is a lot of struggle, but there are men and women overcoming and we need people to uh, to fuel the engine. So uh, Jake, thank you for being an example of a dreamer. 
uh, keep mixing up the crayons and the wax and jumping off the barn. It's working, man. Thanks, brother. My friends, that is Jake Harriman. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>